Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Uh, In the studio, you have me, Zoya. We have George. Good morning. And we have Madison. Good morning. She came back after her first week. We didn't (laughs) didn't didn't terrify her too much. Didn't scare you away by making you do the news headlines. (laughs) (laughs) How are we all this morning? Oh, sleepy. Um, <laughs> the sound of just water. Sorry, everyone. It's pouring cold water into my coffee. I go, how are we this morning? And George is away from the microphone, just very carefully pouring Same. water. Into um, <laughs> hoping no one looks at me, asks me questions. Good, good. Good yeah. this morning. Yeah, yes. despite all that rain. My gosh, I swear, if my alarm wasn't on, I still would have woken up from the sound of that rain. Mm. Really? Was, yeah. It puts me to sleep, the sound of rain, though. Oh, it's quite lovely, right? Yeah. Like rain on a tin roof. Oh, gorgeous. Oh, it's one of those sounds, right? Oh, Mm -hmm. so comforting. Uh, Anyway, that's enough about talking about sounds that we like. Hopefully, uh, I don't know. My my brain just stopped just then. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) So, show today. Quite a good show coming up today, I reckon. Yeah, definitely. Mm. We're going to hear a conversation that I had with a couple of union members, Alma Labog and Glenn Thompson. And Alma's from the Philippines and from uh, the chairperson of one of the unions there. And Glenn Thompson is from the Australian Manufacturing Union here. And they have an event coming up at Trades Hall on Thursday, which is about union repression in the Asia-Pacific and what Australia needs to understand about it and how we can show solidarity. And it, it was really... It was a really interesting and important interview, and it, it brought to light a, a number of things that I, I didn't know about, including mm. Australia's direct involvement in training um, training police and people that are cracking down on the union workers. Mm. Wow. So, we, yeah, we have a lot to do with it, and I, I think that's an important thing to talk about, I guess. Yeah, that's something you don't often think about, or at least I know perhaps it's remiss of me to think about as well, is that. Um, interrelationship with the kind of the transnational nature of production and consumption and all of that and yet somehow we think of unions we only really think of unions within our own country yeah and it's it's very very localized and quite um uh isolationist in our perception i suppose outside of the union movement but clearly it's something that that exists within the union movement which is great yeah and maybe something that is building and needs to build mm. because I guess we're seeing the same kinds of like the things that are going on in the Asia Pacific in terms of the rise of well in the case of the Philippines and Cambodia these are uh, I guess more authoritarian regimes that are, are there but we can say the same about Australia so yeah. how do we see the links and how do we kind of share our knowledge mm. on how to address 
these these violent governments, basically. Mm-hmm. I am really looking forward to those interviews. That's going to be fantastic. I, oh, I'm really excited. I've got, sh- I've got just, like, goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> that. It's going to be so good. Um, Madison, what do we have at 7.40? We will be joined by the incredible Roz Bellamy, uh, who is the online editor at Archer Magazine, an incredible publication um, that was recently recently announced that they lost some public funding. So they are currently running a possible campaign to ensure that they can um, release another another incredible issue of Archer. Um, and Roz will sort of break down exactly where the money's going, how much it actually costs to ethically produce um, such an inclusive and uh, wonderful publication such as Archer. Um, and... I guess give us all some ideas on how we can help when it comes to inclusive media. Absolutely. Cool. Archer is such a, a, a valuable public publications like Archer in general are such mm. so valuable. So um, that'll be really good to hear. And then at ten past eight we will be uh, joined by Julian Burnside, uh, QC, who is president of Liberty Victoria, a um, civil rights organisation, talking about the ruling last week of Love versus the Commonwealth and Toms versus the Commonwealth, which was the court case where the High Court ruled that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people cannot be um, deemed to be aliens mm. in Australia regardless of citizenship status, which was a really profound ruling, but also looking forward, what is it that, that needs to be done now? So that, that should be an interesting closing off of the show. Uh, but coming up now, uh, we have the news headlines. So somehow I've ended up creating a rather international news headlines. <laughs> I just sort of ignored the fact that we were in Australia, but apologies for that. Um, I have a bit of an update on what's happening around the Citizenship Amendment Act. Uh, This is something that I speak to every so often on the show uh, in India. Um, As many people may know, the Modi government, um, who are a far-right, pretty far-right, well, very far-right, Hindu nationalist party, uh, who are the majority party in India, have introduced a piece of legislation called the Citizenship Amendment Act, which will require people living in India to show evidence of being citizens, which is a very, very complex thing because Mm. there's a lot of issues around access to documents, historical movement of people, and that kind of thing. It's also saying that people who are basically not Muslim, who live in countries surrounding India, have a right to become citizens as well. That's uh, to counteract different forms of um, racial, cultural or religious discrimination that they might be experiencing, which is well warranted, obviously, but at the same time, this act in and of itself is a highly Islamophobic piece of legislation. And there are a number of Muslim Indians who are very, very concerned that they may be denied citizenship or it may be a means in which to discriminate against them in a variety of different ways. So a few different things are happening at the moment. There were a series of protests that were happening last year and are continuing to happen, especially based around places like New Delhi, being led by um, students, either students in um, Muslim universities, but also being led by young women or women in general. Uh, For example, uh, Shaheen Bag in New Delhi, there's been a sit-in happening there over the course of the most bitter winter in decades in India and they are sitting to having a sit-in to protest this so there's a whole number of things happening um, 
in terms of what's happening at the moment in the past week, there was uh, this protest that happened in Jamia Millia Islamic University in New Delhi last year, and police stormed that protest. And uh, footage has emerged that on the 15th, on, from the 15th of December that appeared to show policemen in riot gear beating students with batons. Um, Al Jazeera report that it was shared on social media um, this Sunday by the um, Jami Coordination Committee, a group of students and alumni. So it appears to show potential police brutality against these students, which is relatively um, unsurprising. There were reports coming out about that when it was happening, but now it seems that there might be evidence evidence of that. Um, in second bit of news, uh, the Telangana government have passed a resolution against the Citizenship Amendment Act in the State Assembly, which is the lower house of that state government. So India has a, a system very similar to Australia of having a, a, like a federation, a federal government and then state governments that, that have quite a bit of power. Telangana is a state in the sort of south-central bit of India. It has about one-eighth of the state is Muslim. The majority is Hindu. Um, a decision was made at a cabinet meeting chaired by the chief minister, um, K. Chandrasekhar Rao, um, to table this resolution. It's likely that it will pass all the way through government and make uh, Telangana the seventh jurisdiction in India to pass a resolution against the Citizenship Amendment Act. Uh, the other states are Kerala, Punjab, Rajasthan, West Bengal, Madhya Pradesh and the Union Territory of Puducherry. Um, some of those are not you know, they're, they're not like Muslim, necessarily Muslim majority states. So there, it is um, interesting that there's, that there's this movement happening at the state level. Punjab, for example, is on the border with Pakistan. And one of the really big concerns people have around why they want to bring in the Citizenship Amendment Act is um, uh, economic migrants coming from Pakistan and then, you know, the fear of them staying and saying, no, we've been here for generations. Take not... not you know, the issue of borders and global movement of people and whether or not that should be permitted aside, um, you would think that Punjab, which is the place where majority of these people are coming through, would be pro-Amendment Act. But the fact that they've um, passed a resolution against it is really, really interesting. And more Indian uh, Citizenship Amendment Act news. This is obviously, I said this is something that I'm interested in. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we reported that... Um, a couple of people were arrested in Bidar, which is a, town, a city in Karnataka, um, for a play that nine twelve-year-olds put on at the Shaheen School, which is an Islamic, which is an um, Muslim school uh, in that city. A play was put on um, that was deemed to be critical of the Amendment Act and of Modi. There were a few different things that were kind of symbolic of various stuff. The students, it seems like the students potentially created the play themselves and not the parents um, or even the teacher. Um, the two people who were arrested were a mother, a 26-year-old single mother at the school and the teacher who was the teacher of these students. They've been in custody since the 30th of January. Their bail hearing is set for today. The mother herself has not has only seen her child once, her daughter once, since being arrested. Um, 
and students were questioned five times by police. The school's CEO, Thusif Madhukari, alleges that on one occasion, uniformed police questioned students with no child welfare officials present, but the police deny this accusation. So this case is continuing, and um, these women have been arrested for sedition, which is a rather outdated, um, outdated, but it's, it's, a, it's a colonial era law that is basically um, statements or acts that are critical of the state. Uh, the lawyer representing these women saying, is, saying, is saying that these, the uh, use of the charge of sedition is inappropriate in this case. So we'll see what happens as this goes along and we'll keep you updated. Um, very briefly, the Harvey Weinstein trial is set to begin deliberations today. So the jury, I mean, are set to begin deliberations. If found guilty, Weinstein faces, uh, um, potentially faces life in prison. But the issue is, obviously, the high-profile nature of the case could really impact deliberations. If we look back at the Bill Cosby case, for mm -hmm. example, um, the first case was declared a mistrial because the jury couldn't reach a verdict after six days of deliberation. So whether this results in a, um, him, a, a, a decision being made, either guilty or not guilty, remains to be seen, but the deliberations begin today. So, you know, watch this space. Uh, and then finally, one or two little things um, in British news, because I have to bring the British news, and obviously it's going to be not great news because the interesting things are happening over there at the moment. Uh, number 10 has had to uh, refuse a comment. Um, number 10 is refusing to comment on the... Um, appointment of a new advisor, Andrew Sabisky, for Boris Johnson. Andrew Sabisky is uh, known to be rather, um, well, he's racist, basically. His comments, his comments, let's not say he is, but his comments have been deemed to be um, rather racist. He's said some not very nice things around eugenics. Um, we are not going to repeat what he has said via tweets and various other things in terms of his political advice, but needless to say, they are not great. Uh, if you do decide to go out and find out what it is that he said, I would um, advise caution and make sure that if you are likely to be impacted by some of his statements, that um, you prepare yourself. But number 10 have refused to comment on this um, appointment of this rather, quote unquote, controversial person. Uh, and finally, this isn't sort of slightly good news. This is, you know, interesting, good policy that's happening out there. The um, Canadian city of Vancouver has opened its first um, opioid vending machines under oh, no. the My Safe Scheme for Addicts, which is hopefully going to reduce deaths by overdose because obviously it's going to be providing people with a safe dosage that they know, um, you know, what's in it how strong it is and that kind of thing because the majority of deaths that happen as a result of opioid, opioid overdoses are people not knowing the quantity and thinking that it's going to be unsafe, diluted, um, street-level opioids and then end up with something super pure like fentanyl and then they end up overdosing. So this is really, really great. It's going to be really controlled. So we'll yet watch this space in terms of what happens, but pretty cool thing that's happening in Canada. And that is Zoya's monologue slash news. Thanks, Zoya. I gave everyone great. a nice little break. George <laughs> got to drink her coffee. Yeah, <laughs> that has helped a lot. <laughs> Shall we go to a song? Yes, we will. I'd like to share this track uh, from Baby Rose. It's the first track on her album, To Myself, and this song is called Sold Out.
out when we were together. I was like spouse right beside you, playing house. It was all good for now. Everything is upside down. You can take a different route. I'll pick the pieces up somehow. Maybe we turn on. Maybe turn. are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Idioma umebinyo, diaspora blues. What makes you smile? and adds a spring to your step. What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. We're excited to be launching on March 2nd. Connect with us by following the show on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues. 
listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That CSA we just heard is extremely exciting. We are, we are super stoked to be able to listen to Ayan's new program. Yay, it sounds amazing. Ayan. Yeah. And I love that, that little thing. That was so good. Yeah, <laughs> it's, got, it's got a nice like, feel to it. You can tell it's, the, the show is going to have a really nice vibe not nice nice just sounds so insipid a really awesome vibe like yeah. a really great yeah it's gonna be super interesting and check out their instagram they just got instagram as well i think if you search diaspora blues you'll be able to find it fabulous yeah and what was the song we heard before because i really like that song the song is ba- uh, by baby rose and it's called sold out yeah it's she has an amazing voice i really mm. like yeah. that song i feel like i just just record myself saying i really like that song and play it every single time it comes thank you um the i just got the what's it called handle thing on instagram uh, what do you call the that instagram handle instagram handle. handle instagram name <laughs> instagram name three cr dot diaspora blues we really are just a bunch of nanas, aren't we? Well, yeah. I'm the only one here that can't use social media. I don't want to put you all on the same. <laughs> I loved that you just looked up at me with this really angsty expression then like, handle, handle, I got the, is this the thing? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you put Madison, you're I did know, I did uh, know. It is was it, just the it? way that you delivered it that I thought was hilarious. <laughs> is it handle? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So earnest. As no, but is it handle? Let's yeah. not joke. Is it I, actually handle? I, yeah, I don't know. I think <laughs> it is I, handle. While, while, we, while we debate that off air and come back to you with uh, an answer, because I'm sure you'll be waiting, we're going to go to an interview that I did yesterday with Mr. Alma Bong Labog, who is the chair of the KMU Union in the Philippines. And we're ta- we talked about the upcoming event at Trades Hall. It's called The Fight Against Trade Union Repression in the Asia Pacific. It's this Thursday from 5.30 to 7 at, yeah, at, at, in the meeting room, one Vic Trades Hall. Let's give this a listen. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. On the line we have Mr. Alma Labog, who is the chairperson from the KMU Union in the Philippines. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, good morning and uh, good morning to uh, Australia. So you're here today to talk to us about an upcoming event this Thursday. It is about trade union repression in the Asia-Pacific before anything else, I'd like to thank uh, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, Paul, which is the Philippine Australian Union Link, and the FIDA for bringing us uh, into Australia. I am with the Vice President for International Trade, Mayweather uh, Kero, in this uh, uh, trade union tour. And yes, uh, come uh, the, on Thursday, February 20, there's going to be a uh, public uh, facing event. Uh, it's called a spotlight on trade union repression in the Asia Pacific. So there will be me, uh, the general secretary of uh, the Cambodian uh, Trade Union Confederation, Andrew Detno, and uh, uh, yeah, the, the three of us will be at the Victoria Trades Hall, which is 50, 54 Victoria Carlton. Carlton. So We'd like to invite uh, our listeners, especially uh, workers and uh, trade union leaders from various uh, trade unions uh, around uh, Victoria to uh, come and uh, join us in this public-facing event, which would spotlight on the trade union repression going now in the Philippines, uh, Cambodia, and uh, 
several uh, countries around the world. Mm. Yeah, I think there'd be a lot of listeners who would be very interested in showing up to this event to see how they can get involved with this with this issue. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, to share with you what's uh, going now, I think the, the, the uh, uh, very urgent uh, thing that's happening now in the Philippines is the uh, ongoing trade union repression, especially the killings, which has reached up to 46 uh, uh, organizers as well as uh, leaders of the trade union movement being killed uh, in the Philippines. So this is an urgent, uh, uh, urgent matter that calls an immediate uh, action and attention from... Uh, our, uh, our friends and uh, affiliates in the international trade union movement. That is why uh, we are happy to be uh, and thankful to be brought into uh, Australia by the sponsoring organization I mentioned earlier. And that uh, we would like to thank the uh, Australian trade union movement for uh, participating in the global action against trade union repression and killings uh, in the Philippines, especially the extrajudicial killings that are happening now. Uh, uh, and uh, we are thankful that uh, the Australian uh, uh, workers have joined us in this protest last uh, December 10, and it had uh, indeed uh, the, the worldwide attention to what is happening now in the Philippines. And so uh, I think the International Trade Union Confederation played a great role in initiating this event, and it has been carried out by many trade unions worldwide. Mm. And so what's going on here in terms of the political system? You know, why why are we seeing these killings of union members in the Philippines? You see, uh, when uh, Duterte was campaigning for uh, the presidency, he promised uh, two important things to uh, the Filipino people. One is the end of the... Uh, uh, contractualization policy, which has been uh, uh, an ongoing thing within the trade union uh, movement. Uh, contract, contractualization is a, a uh, is a, a policy where the uh, regularization is is uh, left out, and that there are more and more uh, workers who are uh, joining the informal uh, sector because of this. Uh, uh, in for, uh, contractualization scheme by government. And so it was one reason why a lot of the uh, our Filipino workers voted the uh, the state Duterte into office. And another uh, important uh, uh, agenda which he promised to end is the uh, is the uh, ongoing uh, drug menace in the country. And so uh, uh, eventually, the his promise uh, came to note because he even uh, he even uh, vetoed uh, a, an important uh, bill uh, which has been uh, passed in the first place by the Philippine Congress, uh, and it would only require his signature in order to more or less uh, uh, regulate uh, contractualization in the country. So, uh, the, the the expectation of uh, the Philippine workers uh, fell short uh, uh, in, in, in such an expectation. And uh, the, the war on drugs has been going uh, crazily because uh, there, were, there were more and more people being killed. Uh, in fact, the data shows that there are more than 27,000 people killed uh, uh, 
most of the skilled uh, people in the urban poor communities, which includes the informal sector and the and the workers uh, in the urban poor communities. And uh, those uh, uh, high-level drug peddlers are not uh, being uh, prosecuted or punished, as well as uh, several generals and uh, high-level police officers who've been involved in the in the drug uh, syndicates. Mm. So uh, this is the prevailing atmosphere now, and in fact, it's really scary uh, to be critical of the Duterte government because uh, it's not only you're, you're not bound to be uh, put into jail, but also uh, you, you're, you're, you'll be put in danger of being uh, killed mm. if you're strongly uh, critical of the policies of Mr. Duterte. Right. And so it sounds like he, when he came into office a number of years ago, claimed that he would achieve these things for workers' rights and for the safety of, of people in the Philippines, and that's obviously not been done by the sounds of it. Yeah, it is not. Uh, in fact, uh, there is one uh, uh, television uh, station which has been very, uh, uh, very strongly exposing uh, a lot of the... Uh, uh, ongoing uh, uh, anti-people activities of Duterte now is uh, on a vengeance to close down the uh, television right. network, uh, ABS-CBN. Okay. And uh, fortunately, people are supportive of, uh, of going against the closure of this important uh, uh, television outlet. Yeah, so, it, so it's gotten to that level where it's suppression of the media as well, which also, I guess, demonstrates why going to other countries and forming this solidarity solidarity with other union movements is so important. Yes, uh, you're right on that. I think it's not just a matter of, uh, of the closing and establishment, although uh, the closure would eventually affect the, uh, uh, the loss of jobs uh, of more than 11,000 uh, workers in this uh, television market. But it, it's a matter of... Uh, protecting the, the right to uh, uh, freedom of expression and mm. freedom of the press. Mm. Uh, that is the one reason why we are now in Australia to gather solidarity support primarily from our uh, trade union uh, friends and our affiliates uh, in the international community, as well as to uh, call on the uh, conscience of the Australian people to strongly come out and denounce them going uh, political feelings, as well as to stop the funding of the uh, uh, military as well as police machinery of the Duterte government, that in the first place is the cause uh, of these killings. We have learned that the Australian uh, government is funding the uh, intelligence screening of uh, the police and military in the Philippines, but ironically, these are the same uh, uh, instruments that are being uh, used to attack the uh, labor movement as well as the people and uh, indeed the, the trainings uh, and the education that we, uh, we uh, get from the Australian police and military mm. are the same things that they use to surveil and, and, uh, and arrest uh, uh, people out of Trump Act charges. Mm. And I guess that's not surprising. Uh, yet again, we, we see Australia supporting the regimes of violent governments in countries in Asia and benefiting from that? Yeah, I think it, it's uh, imperative for the uh, uh, workers, Australian workers as well as uh, 
the Australian uh, people to call on the government to stop uh, supporting regimes that are very anti-worker and uh, anti-people mm. uh, within the Asia-Pacific mm. region. Uh, I think our collective uh, voices would be a strong, uh, uh, strong uh, action to be, uh, that would be heard by not only by our own governments but uh, uh, other governments worldwide, and this would create a a, a, a huge public opinion mm. that would generate support to really stop the, the uh, attacks, uh, especially the uh, unjust incarceration of Christian uh, organizers and activists, as well as uh, activists who are very critical of the uh, the uh, killings that are. What else are you hoping to achieve at the meeting this Thursday? Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I think one of the important objectives of our tour is to educate the uh, Australian workers on, on the things uh, prevailing now in the Philippines. The very dangerous uh, situation, uh, not only for workers, but especially for organizers, both in the freedom uh, movement as well as in the communities. In the Philippines, we also intend to uh, to uh, uh, initiate uh, from the pre-unions a, a, the uh, the uh, uh, coming out of a resolution uh, to to really denounce uh, the the extrajudicial killings. Uh, one of the important uh, uh, matters we wanted to bring up with our pre-union comrades here is this. If it's possible to, to immediately arrange a, a congressional hearing uh, about uh, the many uh, attacks that are uh, prevailing now in the Philippines, especially the uh, ongoing uh, killings. Uh, uh, when uh, uh, Mr. Glenn Thompson uh, well, came to Manila for the global conference of uh, trade unions, uh, the number of uh, deaths was 43. And in just a matter of a few months, it goes to 46 already. So mm. it's indeed a very uh, uh, dangerous uh, situation that should be uh, stopped uh, and the collective uh, voices mm-hmm. and public opinion of people uh, in the Philippines as well as in the international community mm. to really help us in this very uh, dangerous moment. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it's it's high time that... Australia stands up and acknowledges this and its involvement and that the union movement here does its part to show solidarity. Thank you so much, Mr. Elmerlebog. Thank you so much, too, and uh, I hope uh, you can raise the occasion in, in Melbourne uh, this coming uh, February 20. And again, I'd like to uh, reiterate our invitation for our uh, Australian trade union brothers as well as uh, the Australian population of Victoria to please come and join us in this very important event. Thank Thank you. you You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We were just hearing a conversation with Alma Lebog, who is the chairperson of the KMU, a union in the Philippines, and we're talking about an upcoming event this Thursday at Trades Hall, which is on trade union repression in the Asia-Pacific. Before we jump into another conversation on this issue, I just want to touch on or highlight one of the points that Elmer said. He said that Australia is funding the intelligence intelligence training of police in the Philippines. 
that is being used to kill people. It's killing union workers. There's been now, I think he said, 43 union members and officials who have been killed by extrajudicial violence since the rise to power of Duterte. And we have a direct involvement in that. And that's something that I think a lot of us might not know much about. So if, if you're a union worker and you want to get involved, uh, turn up on Thursday, 5.30 to 7 at Trades Hall. We're going to go to another conversation on this topic with Glenn Thompson. Now on the line, we have Glenn Thompson, who is the Assistant National Secretary for the AMWU. Thank you so much for joining us as well, Glenn. Uh, Good morning, George. It's a pleasure to be with you. (laughs) So you have also some specific knowledge on the international trade union movement that is relevant for this topic and related to this upcoming event on Thursday. Uh, Yes, George. Um, I had uh, the opportunity um, late last year uh, representing Industrial uh, Global Union Federation um, on a fact-finding mission to the Philippines. Um, Obviously, uh, the AMW has had uh, a long history of internationalism and supporting uh, solidarity and worker struggles across the globe. Um, At uh, the meeting that I went to last year... um, the delegation was led by the General Secretaries of Building Workers International and Education International. Um, we uh, spent a couple of days talking to workers, talking to politicians, talking to human rights uh, groups uh, about the um, horrific um, circumstances in the Philippines. Um, as uh, Alma mentioned earlier, um, he uh, out of that, um, the... ITUC, through the Council of Global Unions, uh, developed an action plan to support our brothers and sisters in the Philippines, um, culminating in an international day of action um, and um, calling on uh, the Duterte uh, president to, uh, to do three things. The first of those issues was around respecting human rights. The second issue was to stop the red tagging the rig-tagging of effectively uh, identifying uh, union leaders, union activists and um, intimidating and or um, uh, having, uh, taking uh, action against them. And the third issue and the most important one, and that is, is for the President to uh, accept the ILO's recommendation of the tripartite uh, delegation into the Philippines um, to have a look firsthand at the situation on the ground. At this point in time, um, the government and the president have rejected that ILO uh, tripartite delegation. Right, so clearly shows how important it is for union workers to speak up about this issue, That uh, considering that we're not seeing this action from our government. Yeah, so from, from our perspective in the tour, um, this is a really important um, two weeks um, to, one, educate Australian um, workers and um, unions across the country, and secondly, to um, get our government um, to take a leadership role in um, enforcing and requesting that the Philippines president allow the tripartite um, delegation in the Philippines to carry out um, their investigation. Right. 
So there is clearly a lot that needs to happen to address the repression of workers in the Philippines, particularly acknowledging Australia's complicity. Thank you so much for your time, Glenn. All the best with the event on Thursday as well. Yeah, thank you very much. I'd just, just like to um, uh, you know, thank um, 3CR for the opportunity to get this um, important message and struggle um, across um, the Philippines and within our region. Oh, thank you. We really appreciate it. And I think that our listeners definitely, you know, if they don't already know about this issue, will definitely benefit from, from learning and, and hopefully getting down to the event. So thank you for your time. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Idioma umebinyo, diaspora blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. We're excited to be launching on March 2nd. Connect with us by following the show on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Again, we're hearing info about Ayan's new show, Diaspora Blues, which we are so excited for. George literally was like, play that, play, play that <laughs> service announcement every single time. Just more, more Diaspora Blues. Just play it, play it, play it. Ayan, play You're it. You're going to get sick of it. No, it's too good to get sick of. The oh, background music, if, everything. Is that Solange in the background? Kind of sounds like it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, we, definitely should play, we should play some Solange at some point. Oh, I love Solange. So we just heard a conversation with Alma Labog and Glenn Thompson, union members, both here in Australia and in the Philippines. It's on an upcoming event on Thursday to discuss the fight against trade union repression in the Asia-Pacific. That's this Thursday from 5.30 to 7 p.m., meeting room one, Victorian Trades Hall. Wonderful. And now we are actually joined by the incredible Roz Bellamy, who is the online editor at Archer Magazine. It's so nice to have you in here, Roz. So great to be here. Thanks. So I first met Roz um, when I was a wee 21-year-old writer, um, and I was so thrilled to be published alongside you in this little going down swinging return flight anthology. And it just, that was the first point where I thought, okay, I actually am a writer if I'm being published in the same um, publication as Ros Bellamy. So I have been a huge fan for a very long time. Um, Sweetest. Um, but why we have Roz here in the studio, I mean, because they are brilliant, but also because uh, it was recently announced that Archer Magazine has unfortunately not been able to secure funding. Um, is it for the next six months or for the next um, X amount of time in general? We usually apply once a year. Once a year. But okay. we can apply another three months down the track now okay. that we've missed out. Yeah. But that does mean there's that period, that interim period where we're not funded absolutely and as someone who works in the arts um in general it is incredibly crucial that these sort of inclusive spaces magazines platforms have funding um so we're going to be discussing that with Roz. so first of all can you tell us a little bit about archer magazine in general and how it's developed over the years yeah absolutely so it started up in 2013 um, I remember first coming across it um, when Amy was really founding the magazine and um, 
seeking uh, pictures for the first magazine, whereas now um, it's we've got usually we've got content sorted for issues, you know, going into the future, um, just because of the wideness of our readership and um, it really is something people want to be part of, um, which I think is testament to what an amazing job Amy's done building it up um, from the ground. Um, one of the things, like when I did a little bit of reading about the actual startup, because I haven't been involved from the very beginning. Um, is that Amy faced a lot of um, questions of why the hell would you, you know, start a print publication at this time when basically print is just in trouble. Yeah. And um, I think it's amazing that she had this vision and really has seen it through in this in such a way. And it's just such a hard thing to do. It costs so much to make absolutely the print issue. And when you think about it, you know. Um, in terms of the physicality of being able to hold something like Archer, I mean, growing up and having Dolly and Girlfriend magazines and all of these these sort of magazines that are neither here nor there, the actual experience of young people or people in general um, across the queer spectrum being able to hold something like this and really cherish it is so important. So I think that, you know, print is, is um, such a valuable asset to have. Absolutely. I was at a teaching conference last year and a teacher there mentioned that there was actually Archer in the library and she quickly added... Oh, they picked out an issue that was not too risque and also, I, I don't know, they found some way to kind of cover up the things that the school wasn't okay with oh in it. Oh, my gosh. Um, but the, the fact that it was in a school library and it was a yeah. private school, um, which I found really interesting. Interesting. And the idea of having something like that available when, you know, sex ed is still being taught in a way that's generally abstinence-focused in a lot of places, or if it isn't, it's not queer-inclusive. Absolutely. I think one reading one page of Archer magazine would be um, better than any sex ed I've had through school. It would just be mind-blowing. Yeah, just, <laughs> just the credits, really, and yeah. I've learned still more. Um, <laughs> so each issue of Archer magazine I was reading costs about $55,000 to produce. Um, that is not a, an unsubstantial amount not of money. Can you run us through this breakdown a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And also with funding, um, the amount that we had asked for that we missed out on um, was to cover two issues um, for this coming year. Um, But also with our funding, a lot of it goes to cover the previous year as well and any costs that um, haven't been covered. Um, So in terms of that breakdown, I've got (laughs) you to look at. Um, So it it includes things like um, the printing, the contributors fees. So even though um, it's volunteer run, we still pay all the writers. Um, and we try to be really transparent about that. So for those listening who are interested in writing for us, um, we actually have a pretty detailed page called Write For Us that tells you our guidelines. A lot of places aren't super transparent and um, don't break it down in that way. So generally people reaching out to us have like a really good idea of what we're looking for, mm. um, but also covers things like shipping and postage, distribution and stockers fees, um, honorariums for us, the editorial team, um, which... Um, yeah, is is one of those difficult things as well um, because Amy is really intent on paying all of us. Which, totally. Yeah, at a time like this, it's just like, oh, goodness. Like, as a volunteer, you just want to see the publication succeed. And Yeah. Yeah. It's such a tricky um, spiral to fall down, though, when you're like, I just love this so much, and you erase yourself from the, the costs associated with producing something like this, and you erase your labour, um, which I think is incredible that Amy is so... Um, so thinks it's so important to be able to pay you all, which it is. Yeah, important. and she's always first to take herself out of the equation Yeah, in terms of payment. So that's something, you know, I think about as well. And, yeah, it, it's a huge undertaking on her part to do. Oh, absolutely. You know, financially, but also 
even the mental health cost, and that's another thing that she's really explicit about, that for me, I've never worked anywhere as a volunteer or as a paid worker um, where my sort of boss or management actually talk about mental health and mental illness wow. explicitly. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of mind-blowing to me and um, has, has really worked as, uh, I guess, role modelling to see that you can be open about it. And Absolutely. Yeah. And how did you become involved with Archer? Um, so in 2014, I was um, just a little uh, baby writer, not in terms <laughs> of age, but experience. And um, I was uh, like pretty obsessive and um, obsessed with Archer, I should say. Uh, <laughs> obsessive in all ways, <laughs> always. Um, and I think I reached out when I saw um, Amy, um, you know, seeking pictures. Um, and I was just like, I so want to be part of this that I'll pretty much write anything. Absolutely. And um, so she had like an idea of of this particular article that she was seeking. And it wasn't an area that I had a lot of experience in. It was in fashion. My mum's a fashion designer. So it sounds like maybe I should have experience in that area. But it's just not a thing I know much about or <laughs> or anything like that. And so it was like a pretty huge moment for me because I got to interview two people Um one with quite like a, a following as well and every aspect of it was terrifying. <laughs> um, but Amy was such a great person to work with and one thing, um, I really sound like I'm speaking about her like this guru and I mean maybe she is. She is. She yeah. is, yeah. <laughs> but one thing I've really liked about working with Amy over the years is like she never um, assumes that she kind of knows your limits and your skills and your abilities. Like she's always like, oh, is that a thing you also want to learn? Cool, let's do that. That's wonderful. And I love that because so many people are just like, oh, you're a bit nervous about this thing, so we won't put you in charge of that thing. Mm. Um, and, yeah, at Archer, it's never been that. It's just like, yeah, to be a bit cliche, like sky's the limit around what you can get involved in. Totally. And when did you become um, an online editor? So that was um, end of, not last year, the year before. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I spent a year as deputy online editor working with mm-hmm. Lucy Watson, who's the new editor-in-chief of Archer, mm-hmm. um, just starting around now, so kind of currently working on her first issue as editor-in-chief. Um, and so I recently moved into the role as online editor, Huge. which I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Um, and I noticed on the possible campaign, uh, which is the platform that is being used to to raise the money for for the Archer editions, uh, that there are actually some benefits of getting involved in the campaign, apart from the obvious of supporting the future of inclusive media. Do you mm. want to run us through some of those benefits for the listeners at home thinking, okay, I wouldn't mind mm. a, a goodie bag of que- a queer <laughs> goodie bag, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a few different exciting things. Um, one of them, uh, well, one of them is like the, your name in life. So thanking the people who have donated and helped us keep going. Um, another one is get your um, your name put or your face put on kind of a mock-up cover of the magazine and we send it to you so you've kind of got that artwork, which will be really cute. I can tell you I that. I saw that. Yeah, up in your house. Cute idea. <laughs> totally recommend doing it because, I mean, like how many, we have two issues come out a year, so there's not that many chances to get your face on the front of it. Is, so. it, is it human-specific or could I send in a photo of my hilariously shaggy oh deerhound That question <laughs> hasn't come up, but now that you ask it, I'm like, you need to make this happen. Oh, absolutely. I know that once we spent a whole meeting talking about our dogs, so I feel we like did. Amy would be on board with <laughs> making this happen. Um, and then uh, there are other things as well, like getting a whole um, back collection of Archer, which now some of the issues are um, completely sold out and out of print. So wow. it is a pretty great thing to get your hands on. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, that's all very, very exciting. Yeah. Is was there... Um, no, there was the in lights. There was oh, was there a photo? No, no, no. I'm getting it mixed up. I, I, I suddenly saw an image of Phil, my Scottish deerhound, in drag, and it, I haven't been able to sort of tap out of that since mentioning that on air, um, which is why I just sort of looked at you really um, obscurely. Then <laughs> I feel like animals and archer is a little collaboration we haven't talked enough about. I had a bit of a light bulb moment. I'm not going to lie. I Phil am is. having it too, so <laughs> we'll talk about it more later. Let's talk about that off air. Yeah, yeah. Um, just before we wrap up, I think it's really important, you know, given that it's, it is Mardi Gras season and you see all of the big corporations um, douse their their cop shops and their um, banking ads with <laughs> rainbow flags to remember um, that where, you know, queer rebellion exists is not in assimilation and it isn't being able to support um, publications, platforms and movements like Archer. So thank you so much, Roz, for joining us on air this morning. Thank you so much for having me on and letting me spruik this magazine that I care so much about. (laughs) Spruik away.
The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. VCR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with myself, George, Sawyer and Madison. Thank you for indulging me with that track, a bit of romantic reggae. That was Barry Biggs' Awake in a Dream. I really like that. Yeah. It's such a nice vibe. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted something a bit kind of, I don't know, upbeat to sort of round off that interview. That interview was so fantastic. Ros Bellamy is so cool and um, they came in with their computer with a laptop case that is covered in pictures of their dogs. So (laughs) super, super cool human, seriously. So we're going to share some cool audio with you now. There's a new podcast called The New Arab. It's a leading English language, or it's uh, made by a leading English language website based in London covering topics in the Middle East, North Africa, Asia. Um, And This particular segment is about Lebanon's government and some really interesting things happening at the moment and, I guess, bringing in feminism and critiquing critiquing some things. So I'll just leave you with that and let's go straight to it. On the 21st of January, Lebanon finally appointed a new government, almost three months after Saad Hariri's government was ousted in street protests. The new Prime Minister, Hassan Diab, said he would enact urgent reforms to deal with the country's economic crisis and promised to heed the demands of the protesters. But what made the headlines was that for the first time in Lebanon's history, the government included six female ministers, one of whom was the first female defense minister in the Middle East. The move has been hailed by some as progress in a country where women continue to face systematic discrimination in all matters. But women's rights activists are far from impressed. They say these appointments are nothing more than tokenism. Randa Hamoud is a human rights activist in Beirut. She is one of the thousands of women at the forefront of the revolution since the start of the protests in October 2019. She is one of the many to be distrustful of this new government. People are very disappointed and very angry with the currently formed government, not only because basically this currently formed government um, represents the same structure and establishment that we've been calling on the abolishment of, but basically because 
this current formation makes a total joke of people's demands. It is almost like the establishment is trying to tell people, well, we're not really listening to you and we're trying to push our interests no matter what. She explained to me why the record number of women in the cabinet doesn't make her less skeptical that the demands of the protesters will continue to be ignored. You know, with assigning women with this like quota thinking kind of mentality where we think, okay, if we have women figures in the cabinet, then women's demands are represented. Uh, it's just not something that will actually bring about a real and tangible change because we've had women in cabinet in the past, you know. With the last cabinet, we had four women ministers, which was relatively more than what we had before. And one of them was the Ministry of Interior, which was also a big, um, sort of was publicized as this big gain for women's rights and the first woman interior minister and whatever. And that didn't really bring about real change when it comes to women's rights and women's demands. Because again, the problem isn't just having women figures, it's more about representing these demands. And those demands are only represented through Think, moving towards thinking of the new political landscape because these women that we're bringing into cabinet, they represent the same establishment and the same structure, which is patriarchal and discriminatory in nature. Carmen Jeha resigned from the National Commission for Lebanese Women in 2018 because she witnessed how the present political system cannot be conducive to effective reform. She is now an activist and a professor at the American University of Beirut. She has done ample research on the reason behind the poor access women have to the political system and says it is due to the country's patriarchal history. Women are playing a role. They've always played a role. The only reason that we're not visible in formal political roles is because of the power structures that have controlled the system after the civil war. What happened in Lebanon, particularly after the civil war, is there are seven or eight men that really led the war that went down from their tanks washed their hands from the blood, and decided to really take over the governance of the entire system. And those same men preside over their parties. They don't use political deliberation and formal institutions like parliament in order to make decisions. They go and sit on some kind of national table, which is secret. And it's impossible for women to really penetrate and have a voice in this triangle of this warlord turned politician, second, the religious courts that governs our lives, and third, the presence of weapons. And so this really makes it very difficult, almost impossible. I've done research, you know, with almost 100 women who sort of participated and thought about this political representation issue, and they all, you know, say the same things. Um, the skills and, and, and the, the, the platforms that we have are not what it takes in Lebanon to make it into politics, basically. You need to be rich and powerful and allied with the big guys, and most women are not. But what the revolution does is discredit the rich man and the sectarian man and the armed man, really, and create new platforms for political participation where there, of course, women, you know, become at center stage in kind of creating these inclusive political platforms that allow not only for women, but women's issues uh, to be heard from across the board. And this has been, you know, very, very inspiring to see from, you know, Ferdinand to Tripoli. She says that the nomination of women to the cabinet merely serves as a symbol and that the women themselves don't actually have the power to push for reform. Um, the political elite after the civil war um, uh, are in, unable and incompetent. They cannot do reform in the direction of gender equality because they'll have to let go of one of their most important allies and sources of power, which is religious courts. 
So any sort of empowerment or push for women from their end will remain what we call in research a very nominal type representation, which we see all over the Arab world, which is increasing the number of women and creating sort of structures that nominally represent women. I mean, I sat on one of those structures I, 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 I had the pleasure to serve on the National Commission for a bit, and then I resigned because this nominal type representation doesn't increase substantive representation. We know this from research. And we know that the women who are now currently in the cabinet, it's a nice nominal win. I mean, I, you know, it's great and we don't want to speak ill of them, but they are not uh, sovereign and able to take the decisions that will be in their interest and the interest of other women just because the kind of men that nominated them can't and won't be able to do that. So the religious courts that were mentioned before play a huge role in women's agency within the Lebanese state and their participation to every aspect of society. Maya Mikdashi is a professor of gender studies and Middle Eastern studies at Rutgers University, and she is the co-founder of online magazine Jadalia. She's a specialist on how women interact within Lebanon's legal system. Um, I think unique challenges and the unique ways in which women are uh, positioned legally, uh, and my work is mostly on, on law, Lebanese law. So I think that there's a unique way in which For example, a domestic violence law was uh, the activism around it was was very uh, strong because of a of a legal um, lack of protections around particular forms of gendered violence and a lack of recognition about particular forms of gendered violence. Similarly, uh, you have, for example. Uh, the nationality campaign, which is probably the broadest feminist uh, campaign in Lebanon. So, of course, uh, women will be at the forefront of organizing for their equality. That makes sense, right? It shouldn't be surprising that in a country where the majority of citizens, which are female citizens, cannot grant their citizenship to their spouses or children, of course they're going to be at the forefront of organizing for equality. On the day this podcast was recorded, the protesters were anxiously waiting for the vote of confidence which would confirm the nominations of this new government. The police was erecting walls to keep protesters out of the city center in another attempt to quell the revolt. But all of the women we spoke to were hopeful that the revolution will not rest until all voices of both men and women will be heard. Taranta Festival is back for five days of music, dance, visual arts and food, celebrating southern Italian and Mediterranean culture. Featuring, direct from Italy, the voice of Enza Pagliara, Dario Mucci, Tarantula Garganica and the peak of local acts including Alara, Delirium, Santa Taranta, Opabato, Arte Canela, Cavisha Mazzella, plus the launch of the Melbourne Taranta Orchestra and more. Melbourne Taranta Festival from the 11th to the 15th of March. Full program and tickets available online via trybooking.com and tarantafestival.com.au. Abalati. The Taranta Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We just heard some content from the New Arab, uh, a new podcast. 
and it was on Lebanese feminism and some interesting things going on in their government at the moment. We're now going to hear a new track from Dreaming Now that was released in late Jan, and this one's called Survive. is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 8.12am. George, what was that song we just heard? 
That was Dreaming Now, their new track called Survive. Really, really great track. That was fantastic. Thank you once again for a wonderful song. (laughs) On the air now, we have uh, Julian Burnside, um, a barrister, human rights advocate, author, and the current president of Liberty Victoria, a civil liberties organization that works to defend and extend human rights and freedoms in Victoria. Um, He's well known for his staunch opposition to the mandatory detention of asylum seekers um, and provides legal counsel in a wide array of high-profile cases. He's on to talk to us about a recent high court ruling around the status of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Um, good morning, Julian. How are you? Good morning. Good, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to come on to speak to us. Sure. Uh, so, um, last week, the High Court ruled on two cases, Love versus the Commonwealth and Tom's versus the Commonwealth. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these cases, what they were about? Well, they were both about uh, people who had Aboriginal descent uh, but had been born outside Australia. Um, one in New Zealand, one in Papua New Guinea. And the the question was, given that these people had lived for a very long time in Australia, they had committed uh, criminal offences, which meant that the minister was able to cancel their visa under Section 501 of the Migration Act, and um, they were then subject to being removed from Australia. Now, the removal from Australia is pursuant to the aliens' power under the uh, Constitution, Section 5119. And the question arose squarely, well, can a person of Aboriginal descent be regarded as an alien? And by a majority of four to three, the High Court ruled, no, they're not aliens. They are the original inhabitants of the country and Aboriginal people cannot be regarded as aliens. Mm, so that seems like quite a significant ruling. Are you able to sort of maybe pick out for us a bit why it is that that this is such an an important um, decision? Well, it's important because the um, the idea that a group like us, I mean, we that were a white settlement happened 230 years ago. Aboriginal people have occupied this land for 60,000 years. Um, there is something a little odd about the idea that we can simply move in and say, well, some of you are actually aliens to this country, even though your history goes back thousands of generations further than our history in this country. Mm. Now, there were seven different judgments, and they all go along different lines. So it's very hard to generalise about it, but the central question was, <clears throat> can, they be, can Aboriginal people be regarded as aliens? Mm. And in terms of uh, the potential impact of this ruling, looking, I guess, at you know, possible future um, uh, cases that may come up or possible future decisions that may come up, how do you think this may, this may impact... Um, you know, discussions around the sovereignty or the status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia? Uh, To be honest, I think it's not likely to have a very wide effect Mm. because um, there are not very many people of Aboriginal descent who were not born in this country. And so the, the principles of the case won't 
has very wide operation. But at a philosophical level, it's profoundly important. I think it's very important that the highest court in the country has said that Aboriginal people are not capable of being regarded as aliens in this country. Mm. Absolutely, that is that is a really, really significant thing. And um, interestingly, the, the case, uh, the, the decisions in the majority, um, all ultimately turned on or referred to the principles in the Mabo case, uh, which also was a pretty important significance, uh, at least symbolically. It's very important that, um, you know, we who arrived here 230 years ago had, in case after case, decided, well, um, that they didn't own the land because they didn't have a concept of ownership. But mm. in the Mabo case, the High Court said, no, these people owned the land in, a, in all relevant senses when we arrived. And if if they have not, if their land has not been taken and occupied by us, and this was an island in the Torres Strait, um, then it remains theirs. And of course, the irony of that is that we um, look at land as something which is owned. Um, whereas the Aboriginal people did not have a concept of ownership of land. Um, for them, the relationship between an Aboriginal person and the land is more like the relationship between child and parent. And most kids, even, even millennials, don't regard themselves as owning their parents. Um, so I think that was a very important decision symbolically and equally important is this symbolic effect of uh, love and Tom's. Mm. And certainly, I suppose, the fact that the um, the statements or the decisions made by the justices, the fact that they reference Marbo clearly shows that that connection and that through line. And as you said, the philosophical significance of both of these, both of those rulings. Yeah. And I think it's, um, <clears throat> it's also important because um, given what we now know of the connection between Aboriginal people and the land, it's 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 a, a slight irony that um, we not only harm them terribly by taking their land from them in almost every case, um, we redoubled that harm by taking their children from them. Mm. And the irony is that in Australia, um, Aboriginal people um, are now suffering pretty badly, and most Australians, not all, but most Australians, I think, regard Aboriginal people as no hopers, as if it's somehow their fault that they're in such a bad way, mm. whereas, in fact, we've inflicted tremendous harm on them. Um, and I, I'm, for that reason alone, I'm very glad that a majority of the High Court have said, well, Aboriginal people can't be aliens, they cannot be kicked out of this country, mm. um, no matter what they do. Do you feel, and I, and I suppose this could be a difficult thing to comment on, uh, but do you feel potentially, as someone who's had a lot of experience in this space, that this indicates a possible shift in approach or tone on the part of the High Court in terms of future rulings that might come up? I mean, obviously it's difficult to comment on that, but from a, a feelings perspective, perhaps. It is a bit difficult to comment on, but <clears throat> it's... Um I mean, it's a, it's a very close decision, 4-3, um, and uh, the 
judges in the minority included the Chief Justice and um, uh, and the other two who um, deserve very great respect for... You know, I mean, I, let me be quite blunt about it. Even though I disagree with the minority judges and even though I disagree with a number of judgments of the court, the fact is that we're very lucky in this country to have courts, including the High Court, uh, whose judges make decisions honestly according to their view of what the law says. Mm. So um, so I, I guess what you're saying is that it's, it's, you don't feel that this potentially is showing uh, any kind of shift in the philosophical perceptions of the court because in reality these judges are making decisions far more based, obviously because it's their job, far, far more based on, on the law itself. So, so who knows what future rulings may, may hold, I guess. Yes, I don't mm. think it's a shift in the way the court thinks. Mm. Um, it is a significant shift in the legal content of Australian law. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sp- speaking of that, you mentioned previously that, that you know this has far more of a, I guess, philosophical impact than a real impact. Um, are you, do, do we have any idea how many people this ruling may actually impact? Um, Personally, I don't know. Mm. But when you think about it, what this applies to uh, at, at surface level, what it applies to is circumstances where people of Aboriginal descent have been born outside Australia and have come back to live in Australia and are therefore living on visas and have committed uh, criminal offences which are sufficient to trigger the possibility of cancellation of the visa under Section 501 of the Migration Act. Now, Section 501 is being used a great deal by the minister to cancel visas of people who've lived here for a long time. Mm. Um, And it's only if those people happen to be Aboriginal who happen to have been born outside the country and have citizenship of another country, it's only in those circumstances that it will have wide importance. And I think numerically that will be a very small number of cases. Yeah, absolutely. I guess there's there's a lot of situation there's a lot of context there that has to has to happen. Um, yeah. mind you, you have to. I think people should be aware of how harshly Section 501 is being mm. administered. It, it includes cases, for example, where people have um, been born outside Australia, have come to Australia as infants, and have lived here for 30 or 40 or 50 years. No, no other country other than Australia and they get in trouble with the law, and the minister cancelled their visa, so they're then deported to the country where they were born. Yeah. With absolutely no knowledge of that other country, and in many circumstances, don't even speak the language which is spoken in that other country. Mm. Yeah, that is is just horrifying, and and I, yeah, (laughs) no words on that, really. Uh, In in terms of... And, of course, the justification for it um, according to ministerial directives. The justification is that Australians take adherence to the law very seriously and look very seriously at criminal conduct. Well, for a land that was founded by convicts, that's a kind of peculiar position to, to adopt. Absolutely, and land that was, that was taken from people and founded by convicts. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, speaking about that law, actually, quite briefly before we um, end... Is there anything being done in that space to try and address address those 
those deportations or address the way in which that law is, is being applied by the minister? Um, there are quite a few cases in which cancellations have been opposed, um, but there seems to be um, no question about the constitutional capacity to have enacted Section 501, except when the supposed alien is uh, a person of Aboriginal descent. Mm. Um, so apart from resisting on a case-by-case basis, there's very little that can be done. In fact, there was a High Court decision some years ago concerning a person whose parents were from Sweden. Um, they had moved, they migrated to Australia. The wife got pregnant and they decided to have one last holiday in Sweden before having the baby. When they were in Sweden, the mother experienced complications with the pregnancy and doctors there said, look, um, you shouldn't fly back to Australia until after you've had the baby. So um, the baby was born in Sweden and was therefore a Swedish citizen. And they came back to Australia when the baby was just a few weeks old. 35 years later, that baby, now a grown-up, got in trouble with the law in relation to drugs and was deported to Sweden. And the, the High Court said, yeah, that's okay. That is just... that. That just beggars belief, to be honest. I mean, this this idea that somehow, you know, your your belonging in a place can be so determined by by a by a law like that is when yeah, been living there your whole life. It's it's that's just really not right, is it? <laughs> no, I agree completely, and I think there's quite a few of us who are trying to um, resist mm. that consequence in as many cases as possible. Yeah, but that's you know, that's the law of the country. And yeah. it's a pity that more people don't realise just how much cruelty is being inflicted on people who, admittedly, they're not innocent. They have committed serious offences. And the trigger for it is if you have um, been sentenced to a jail term of 12 months or more. Mm. Now, that means moderately serious offending. But it, it has to be said, if a person has lived in Australia since childhood and gets in trouble with the law in their 30s or 40s, or older in some instances, um, you would have to say that probably their problems are Australian-type problems. They're problems they learned as Australian children. Absolutely. Well, that's a really um, interesting, uh, I guess, focus or outcome to come out of talking about this uh, this case and I really appreciate you coming on to pick apart those different complexities and vagaries. I'm afraid that's all we have time for now but Julian Burnside, thank you so much for coming on to speak, speak to us today. Thanks very much. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Idioma umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. We're excited to be launching on March the 2nd. Connect with us by following the show on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues.
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. As promised, we played another announcement from Diaspora Blues uh, because the wonderful Ayan, who used to present, is producing it. So please, please, please tune in. It sounds like it's going to be such a great show. Speaking of great shows, this was a great show. Wonderful show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised. Look at, look at my segue. And never surprised. I, I, oh, I think we put on fantastic content for everyone in the morning. Um, when I'm tired, I get very self-involved and self-aggrandizing. Mm-hmm. But who did we have on the show? We spoke to Alma LeBog and Glenn Thompson, union members, about the upcoming event at Trades Hall on union repression in the Asia-Pacific. So if you are interested in attending that meeting, that's this Thursday from 5.30 to 7, meeting room one at Trades Hall. We also spoke to Roz Bellamy, who is the online editor at Archer Magazine, who have recently announced that they have unfortunately not been able to secure funding um, for this year. So we spoke to Roz about crowdfunding and how important it is to get involved in their current Possible campaign, which you can find on Possible if you search Archer or if you go to their uh, Twitter page and Instagram, they have all of the appropriate links on there. Fantastic. We had um, some audio from the New Arab podcast, which we may play for more of another time. And then we spoke to Julian Burnside, QC, about the recent High Court ruling uh, Love and Toms versus the Commonwealth. Up That's next is Accented Women. You can catch us next week and tune in to Wednesday Breakfast tomorrow. Thanks for listening.